Our reading this morning is 1 Samuel 25, and it can be found on page 297 of the Church Bibles. It's quite a long reading. It's the story of Abigail, which is possibly not very familiar. Hence, we're having it all this morning. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Cabalite. Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not ill-treat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore be favourable towards my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters nowadays. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where. David's men turned round and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did and David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he's hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not ill-treat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now, think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sears of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. 
As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending towards her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with it, deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before him with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. As for me, your servant, I did not see the, lord, the men my lord sent. And now, my lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives, and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as, uh, as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord everything, every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought to him and said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things. 
and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, I am your servant and am ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife. David had also married Ahinoam of Jezreel and they both were his wives. But Saul had given his daughter Michal, David's wife, to Paltiel, son of Laish, who was from Galim. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much for that, Rosemary. Thank you, folks, for listening through all of that. As Rosemary said, Abigail's not well known, so I thought it'd be helpful to just really get the full story on her before I start. Let's pray before I do so, shall we? So, Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you will speak into our lives now. We pray that we'll come away from, from this morning's service touched by you, so, Lord, use these words that I speak now for your glory. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not quite sure of my cultural references within this service. How many people would know of the comedian Peter Kay? Oh, my gosh, quite a few. I'm not surprised that Matt does, but we'll keep going. Um, so, Peter Kay's most famous um, skit is one, and he's a northern comedian, his most famous skit is when he talks about foreign foods. And um, the skit goes something like this. He's in a restaurant or in restaurants and being introduced to various foods, and he's not heard of them before, and he can't imagine that they could be foods. So he starts off, as he's presented with something, garlic bread, as in how can you possibly put garlic and bread together? and follows it up with cheese cake, cheese and cake, oh, I'm not having that, and then proceeds to eat it and realises how much he actually likes it. Well, I must confess that we, we've had this sort of preaching series over the summer where we've gone through the obscure um, people in the Old Testament and when I looked, sort of blithely looked a few weeks ago at who I had been alligated and saw it was Abigail, I thought, Abigail, Abigail, please don't judge me, but I must confess that I hadn't heard of Abigail. I'm ashamed to say that. I'm sure you all had, but I hadn't. But as I have looked into Abigail and I have learned about her, 
I have been quite struck by what I have read, and I do believe that there is a relevance for, for me and for you in Abigail and her life. Probably quite a few of you know that I'm a headhunter, and you'll appreciate that one of the aspects of a headhunter's work is interviewing candidates. And um, it's becoming increasingly fashionable, uh, much to my annoyance, to do what's called competency-based interviewing, where you don't conduct a normal interview with candidates, but instead your aim is to work out their competencies. And the classic way to perform well in a competency-based interview, just so you know, is when asked uh, what your competency is in a particular area, to think of the so-called star mnemonic. S for the situation, T for the task that you pursued in or were given in response to that situation, A for your action, an R for the result. And I thought that it might profit us to look at that in relation to this story that Rosemary read so heroic, heroically about Abigail. I might just say as a very quick aside that not doing those competency-based interviews myself, what I tend to do when I interview people is to get them to tell me their story, their life story and their career story. And it's amazing what you can learn about from people as you do that. I'll start my interviews by saying typically, ah, oh, so you, I, yes, uh, having had a quick look at their CV before I go into the room to interview them or turn online to interview them, I'll start by saying, yes, so of course you, of course you, um, you were a scholar at Eton, you went to Cambridge and then you did your masters in Harvard. Uh, tell me what happened in your career, in your life after that. And they'll look nervously at me and say, no, 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 I left school at 16 and began work then and I realise I've got the wrong candidate. But, um, <clears throat> anyway, let's talk about Abigail uh, and let's talk first of all about the situation that she found herself in. So there were, as you will recall, three protagonists in this situation. Uh, this is where I need to start to get my notes out, just to remind me how I want to describe the three of them. First of all, there was David, and you'll gather from what we learnt that David had moved with his 600 men into the desert of Paran, which is on the south side of Israel, as Israel was then, and it was essentially the badlands. It was a dangerous environment. And he and his men were living amongst the shepherds and their sheep in that environment. And as we learn later on, they were described by one of Nabal's servants as being night and day a wall around them, protecting Nabal's sheep and his men. Then we have the baddie, our second protagonist, Nabal, who we learnt was very wealthy with a thousand goats, 3,000 sheep in Maon, which is in the desert of Paran, and it is still there today, and it is still um, where farmers keep their sheep. And we learn that he has moved his sheep from the pastures there into the town of Carmel for the shearing. And we learn about Nabal, that he's surly and mean in his dealings, 
and that he's such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. But finally, we have the third protagonist, Abigail, who we read is an intelligent and beautiful woman. And then we get to the flashpoint. So after Nabal has met his sheep and after David and his men have been in the deserts, Nabal moves his sheep to Carmel for the shearing. And of course, there's a festival associated with that shearing. It's a great time of celebration as the sheep come in safely from the pastures to be sheared for their will, wool to of course be sold. And it's at that point that David asks 10 of his men to go into Carmel and to speak with Nabal, saying to them, to him, be favorable to my men, for we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. It's a perfectly fair request. They've been protecting the sheep and now they're asking for whatever Nabal feels is right. Not unreasonable, you might think. However, Nabal goes thermonuclear at this point. Uh, I used to work at the Financial Times and um, I used, back in the day, its, its headquarters were on the South Bank near Borough. And back in the day, 20 years ago, Borough was the badlands of London. It was not what it is now. And the barbers that I used to go to there had a sign on the wall which read as follows. Please do not ask for credit as a smack in the mouth often offends. Uh, so I think Nabal kind of had that response to David. As Rosemary read, he says, who is this David? Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where. So he's highly insulting to David's men, who of course then leave, there are only 10 of them, and they go back and they report this to David, who in turn, we might say, somewhat overreacts. His phrase immediately, as soon as hearing this, to his men is, strap on your swords. We're going after them. We're gonna leave none of these men alive. So he sets off with his 400 men towards Carmel to destroy Nabal and his men. So if that is the situation, we now turn to the task because by God's providence, one of Nabal's servants overhears this conversation between David, first of all, between Nabal and his men and David's men and then realizes about David's response. So he goes, the servant goes to Abigail and he tells her, and he says to her, here's the task, now see what you can do. Think it over because disaster is hanging over our household. So Abigail is given this task. What does she do? What is her action in response to this task? Well, we read in verse 18, Abigail acted quickly. She prepares gifts. She sends her, a group of her servants on donkeys 
towards David and his men, and she follows a lone woman on her donkey out into the badlands to seek to meet David and his men. He had 600, we know he's traveling with 400 of them. A very popular question that I find that my wife Samantha and I get when we're together with other people we don't know that well is, how did you meet each other? Where did you meet? And our stock answer is on a doorstep in Islington which was the case. Uh, a friend of ours introduced us to, to each other because we were both attending churches. He wasn't, and he wanted us to meet, and he sent Sammy to the door to open the door when I was heading there for dinner. Hello, I'm Smatham. So we met on that doorstep in Islington. It was not like that for Abigail and David. They met, we read, in a ravine, and I would encourage you to think of that situation as David is coming towards her with the swords strapped on, about to launch into battle with her husband and Abigail as a lone woman in a very, very patriarchal society is there on her donkey meeting David. And she pleads her case to him, and she does so very eloquently and very powerfully. And of all the things that she said, which Rosemary read, I would say, in my view, the knockout blow which changed David's mind and, let's say, the course of history, was that if David turned around with his men, staggering bloodshed could be avoided and David could avoid having on his conscience and in the history that people were aware of, of him for the rest of his life, this senseless bloodshed of killing Nabal and his men. And the result? Well, this impacts David powerfully. And he says to her, I have heard your words and granted your request, we read in verse 35. So David steps back from the brink, the Cuban Missile Crisis of that time is avoided. So he returns back into the desert with his men and Abigail returns to Nabal to tell him what she has done on his behalf, let's remember that, on behalf of this husband who clearly had not treated her and those around him well. She gets back and she finds him having a banquet like a king and drunk. So quite sensibly, she leaves him until the next morning and then tells him what she's done on his behalf, at which point he has a stroke as he has the shock and horror of realizing what she has done, and 10 days later dies. At which point David, hearing about this, asks Abigail to marry him. And as we read, or as Rosemary read, of course she does so. And I would just say, 
this point that, in my view, this is a rare instance of obedience leading directly and immediately to blessing rather than, as it so often does, and as I will come to in a minute, leading to sacrifice. So, what are we to take away from this story? I'm not very good at practicing my sermons beforehand, and I'm not very good at working out the timing of how long it's going to take to deliver them. So we'll have to see how I go here, folks, but potentially there's three things that we might, or we might get to cover. We might not manage all of them. The first is the narrowest takeaway from this story which might be asking ourselves, what are the situations where the Lord is calling you and me to identify a task and act? In what ways might the call of Micah be relevant to us when we are called, God says in Micah, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God? In what ways are we being called to go into the ravine at the moment, to put ourselves into uh, the line of danger for the sake of God and his truths? I would suggest that there could be two ways in which this might apply to us. It might be that we feel that there is a situation in our family or our neighbourhood or community or at our work where God is calling us to speak up for justice and to put ourselves into the, that ravine. Or it might be that we feel that there is a situation more widely in society where God is calling us to speak up. <clears throat> I believe increasingly that we are living in a post-Christian society where it is very different for us in our generation from how it was in previous generations and we are increasingly being called to stand up from the way, for the ways in which our society has moved against God's precepts. You may have read in the Daily Mail of all places uh, just last month about, and again, I don't know how many of you will know of him, uh, an Anglican vicar called Richard Fothergill, who set up something called the Filling Station, which is a resource for evangelical small groups in their communities. And he felt called to write to his bank, I'll call them out, it was the Yorkshire Building Society, when they had asked, them for, asked him for feedback on how they were performing as a bank. And he wrote back to them and said, well, you're doing a great job as a bank, but I must say that some of the... Um, lifestyle issues that you are starting to get involved in commenting on, surely that's not your role as a bank. Three days later, 
they cancelled his account. And he was out of that account. He'd been in for, I think, 18 years. So we are swimming against the tide. And for me, uh, I don't know why I mentioned this, but as, as some of you know, I'm a, I'm a great reader. I love reading. I love reading novels. What I'm increasingly finding is that to find novels to read, which are in, keep, are in keeping with the values that I subscribe to, I need to go back to the Victorians. I need to go back to Victor Hugo and Les Miserables, books such as that, to Dickens, to Trollope, to find books that speak of our values. I struggle to find authors today that do that. You know, we are perhaps like the frog being boiled in water, and we don't realise what our society is becoming and how God might be calling us to stand in that ravine. Just as a very quick aside around that, um, I was at a Christian conference this week, and uh, one of the speakers mentioned that when uh, a church leader was set looking to set up a church in China and was speaking to various potential leaders to join him in that church, he heard a number of them speak. There was, he thought they were all great. There was one young guy who was particularly eloquent and this guy who was looking to set up this church turned to all of the leaders there and said, yes, I think you're all great. I think this young guy is particularly ready to serve, but was very surprised when the other leaders turned around and said, actually, we don't think that this guy is right to serve. So the church leader said well, to them, well, why not? What, what, what hasn't he got? Why isn't he ready to serve? And they said to him, well, we don't think that he has suffered yet. Until he has suffered, we don't think that he is ready to lead. Most of us, they said, have been in jail for periods of at least three years, and we have suffered, and we feel ready to lead in this context. I'm probably running out of time now, so I'll speed up just with, if that was the narrowest sense in which this word might apply to us, I think there is a broader sense as well, and that is that we might do well to step back and think, what is my situation at the moment? And I would argue that probably the best way for us all to look at our situation is to think about our relationship with God and where we stand on that. I had been feeling, and I'll just talk about where I feel I've been at recently, I've been feeling very flat in my faith for a number of months. That, as I reflected, had felt like my situation. What is our task in response to that situation? Let's think about what God would have us do to address where we are in our relationship with him. I felt my task was to find some kind of an intervention, some kind of an inflection point to do something after all of those months. So by God's grace, I, I searched out, I thought, well, I need to go away on some kind of a retreat or Christian conference to sort of have this inflection point. And by God's grace, he led me last week to, to Lee Abbey uh, to hear this speaker, Simon Gilbaud. I followed that, I changed my annual leave, I went on that, 
And I would say that the result has been that I have felt that God there spoke into my situation. I've had a number of areas where I felt, no, this is how I need to act in order to change my circumstances and my relationship with God. Spending more time with him in prayer, being more expectant, having heard the stories from the other people at Liabi about how after many, many, many years of praying for people and circumstances, they then saw God act. I've come away encouraged by that. And I've come away particularly encouraged by one little story I heard, which again, you may have heard before, of a, a pastor, in, again in Victorian times, Rodney Gypsy Smith. He was a gypsy, he was an unlettered man who became a great preacher, a great winner of souls for God. And someone went to him and said to him, what is God calling me to do? How can I follow you in this great work? And Rodney said to him, well, I think it's very simple. Get yourself a piece of chalk. Take the piece of chalk, go home, Go into your bedroom, shut the door, kneel down on the floor, take your piece of chalk and draw a circle around you on the floor with that piece of chalk. And then start praying earnestly to God for revival to start within that circle. I was very struck by that. And I just want to finish by talking about the broadest sense in which I believe today's passage speaks to us. And that is the situation that we find ourselves in with God. We found ourselves in with God, separated from God by our sinfulness, by our absolute inability to come into his holy presence because of what we've done and who we are. And the task that Jesus took on to be the bridge between us and God as he took our sins in our place and the action that he took going into the ravine on our behalf going up against powerful men and being willing to go into that ravine and in Jesus' case, going all the way to that cross for us. With the result, as we read Paul writing, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are reconciled to God, brothers and sisters. Let's pray.